Introducing Mortgage Matters. He has no idea how bad it is out there. He has no idea. A show dedicated to helping you navigate a challenging and ever-changing financial and real estate landscape. The economy continues to face numerous difficulties. Now, your hosts, Dan Podesto and Jason Grody of Central Coast Lending. The fact that you're being called upon to help clean up Wall Street's mess is an outrage. Broadcasting outrage. live from the KVEC studios in San Luis Obispo. What economy are you talking about? Talking it's about, time for Mortgage Matters. Hey, good morning, everybody. Welcome to Mortgage Matters. See, uh, it's Veterans Weekend. Happy uh, Veterans Day. Well, actually, late Veterans Day to everybody. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you, everybody, for serving. Serving, Yeah, exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And it's not a rerun today. Even though it's it's a holiday weekend, we're here. (laughs) Yeah. I got to admit. We got live and in person today. I didn't work very much yesterday. My kids were out of school, so took the opportunity to go hang out with them. Uh-huh. What's wrong, Dan? You can't hear? No, I'm fine. I'm fine. Huh. My mic keeps turning off. Oh, because I keep thinking that you're on mic. I don't know why I do that. I, I'm still thinking we're over in the old studio and you're on the other mic. Uh, so I turn that one off after the motor mouse and then I forget... Oh yeah, he's on the other. I, we were I, just that's one thing we were about the studio, right there. Well, you know, I I'm, kept hitting on. That's right. And I'm trying to, you know, off. actually, Dan, I'm trying to give Jason a little time to talk if during the show. If you don't want me here, just say so, and I'll leave. Yeah, yeah. no, I good. Yeah, I'm no, to, we want you here, and, and, and just be fully aware. If you leave, I'm yeah. going right behind you. No, no, no nobody is leaving the studio right now. Dan and his. Uh, Willingness to uh, do this show alone is not something I possess. I, I'm not going to do that. Yeah. Anyway. So. Yeah. So. Um, a crazy week. Yeah. Pretty wild week. Short week. Um, you know, obviously we had the election this week. And. Um, oh, boy. We. <laughs> Glad that things just settled down. And... Oh, calmed right down. No, no. Yeah. So last week, you remember on the show, we were like, hey, on the upside, all those political ads yeah. all stop on Tuesday. Yeah. I know. I was so <laughs> glad. now uh-huh. we traded that for, like we, I mean, I said it last week. You knew it too. Yeah. At least 75% of the country is going to be upset no matter what the outcome was. Oh, boy. So people are plenty upset. No surprise there. Mm. And, um, Hey, I brought I brought lots of little notes about, you know, some of the the speculation and what it could mean cuz now that we know who the president elect is, of course, now we get to try to use the crystal ball to decide what it's going to do. What's it going to affect? How's the market going to react? You know, all these different things. There's a, there's quite a bit there actually to talk about and and by the way, since we're going to talk about some of the stuff today, um I don't want to have a conversation about um, any of the, I mean, we're going to try to stick to the economic impact, and and I don't want to get in a big heated discussion about you know, I, basically the not my president stuff. I, I'm of the mindset, regardless of whether or not you support the outcome of of Tuesday's election, it is what it is. That's the president elect. Um, you can be dissatisfied, satisfied, uh-huh. angry, happy, whatever you want to be. Mm-hmm. Um, it, what's done is done. And so in, in as much as we're going to talk about this bit today, we're not going to get, we're not going to have any conversation, nor are we going to tolerate any conversation that, that leads us into like, you know, some big political mess. 
I'll so. practice my finger on the dump button here. <laughs> Perfect. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. So, um, but yeah, so anyway, it set the markets on its head, didn't it? I mean, this is, this is the first place to jump in. If you were watching whatever news channel you were watching on Tuesday night, we saw, um, I was going to even say Monday on Monday when you were watching sure. economic news, you were told that, Hey, there's a chance that Donald Trump can win. And if so, expect the markets to go down big time. Correct. Well, and I also saw, so big league, <laughs> I saw on Monday though, I mean, there was a little bit of a correction in for, for us. We like it when the bond yield goes down, it's the end of the sweet thing. And that was kind of happening on Monday. And I saw some stuff on Monday that said, oh, well, this is in anticipation of um, the Clinton being president-elect, that being announced um, here shortly, and the market's just sort of getting ready for that. And so, okay, fair enough. Well, once then we learned that, hey, they're counting votes here, and some of these states that are critical are now starting to lean that way. Right away, the Dow futures. I mean, I I was flipping between about three different news channels trying to see, is everyone reading this the same way? And everyone started going, the Dow futures are hitting yeah. their maximum session down. So there's a first point of interest. The Dow's got some triggers in it that if you have a pretty significant sell-off in a single session, I believe it's 800 points, that they just shut it down. And they're going to let you sleep on it. And we'll reopen tomorrow. Yeah. So the futures were down, which ultimately suggests that as soon as the market happens, this is the sell-off that's going to occur. Well, um, that was I was kind of accepting that um, that night. I was like, well, okay, I get it. Probably going to not sure what it all means, how to digest it. Are there going to be... Is there going to be a, a contest and vote recounts? Are things going to be crazy for a little bit here? And I would expect maybe some of that money to move from the stock market. And and so you see the stock market sell off, right? And where would that money go? Well, you'd probably park it in the bond market. So I'm expecting we're going to see a big sell off. Unless it just moves to the sidelines. Sure. Um, and so I started thinking, well, heck, if he really does win and this all holds, tomorrow the stock market's going to open up and dump, but so are the bond markets. We're going to get some low interest rates. Uh, as it turns out, the stock market opened up and didn't dump. It basically shot up pretty good. <laughs> and then the uh, the bond yields went up like crazy too. Um, and so there's a lot of there's been a lot of attempts all week long to try to figure out how to best address why that bond market went um, those yields went up the way they did. and and we'll get into that, you know, in a bit here. Um, it's a, it's been an interesting thing. And then to compound it with yesterday being veterans day, the market was closed. So we didn't even really get to see a full normal week. We saw the market kind of get thrown on its head and then shut down early for the week as it was already scheduled to do that. And so Monday I will have a better sense of what's going on, um, for anybody that's involved in a loan transaction this week and your loan's not locked, pretty crazy week. Um, in fact, loan officers around the country are hoping that we sort of come back to normal next week, at least give some of it back. It was a knee-jerk reaction, and the pendulum swung very far. A no-points rate on Monday is effectively a one-point cost by the end of the week. And that's a really <coughs> volatile, that's a big movement in one week. Yeah, that 
to quantify the move, we saw the the bond yield go from about 1.8 on Monday to about what it closed at 2.15 yeah. on Thursday. So 35 basis point move in By a, the way, of a couple of days. That's bigger than the movement from the Brexit. Right. That was yeah, it was a it was a big move two two days in a row where it moved significantly and mortgage rates definitely followed. Saw a lot of a lot of negative price changes. So what we saw is roughly a quarter to three eighths of a point change in rate, or as it translates into price, the same rate costs about a point more, maybe even a little bit more than that. Yep. So a lot of, lot of movement. That's a big movement in one week. And, and I think so... they said it was the most volatile it had been since um I want to say it was somewhere in 2012, which I think was when we had that first rate hike or talk of rate hikes or what what was the big move that caused the markets to just go crazy overnight? Do you remember that? It back moved like in, eight points. Um, Back in 2012. It was based on some kind of Fed testimony. I want to say that it had something to do with the... Um, oh, they talked about quantitative easing yeah. i think that was when they talked about stopping it yeah quantitative easing the second round of quantitative easing um some people basically did the math and figured out where it ran out of money and then and that was right between when we were straddling operation twist which was quantitative yeah. easing three which became that open-ended sort of we're gonna buy indefinitely and and i think that was going on in about that era because remember it took a couple years too of the taper tantrum as it was deemed at the time that's what it was to it begin was wearing off it was announcing tapering yeah that we and it's it that was the last time we saw this kind of volatility right. yeah and so these bond yields now are returning to level seen like last january which was right after the december rate hike you know starting q1 of 2016 and the bond yields were high in retrospect, now we know that those bond yields came back down and things settled down a little bit. So I'm I'm thinking right now it's potentially a little bit of a knee-jerk reaction where the markets, nobody really anticipated, um, well, anticipated or not. I don't think anybody was convinced that uh, Donald Trump was going to win. I think, I think it's safe to say that markets were not prepared for that. Yeah, and... When we went, when you go back and you look at um, some of the big donors, you know, Hillary had those speaking uh, engagements with Goldman Sachs and other big banks. And it seemed like it seemed like they all were enjoying um, the predictability at a minimum of what a Hillary presidency would mean in terms of regulation, um, you know, performance, the regulatory environment, but also business ability to function within and be profitable and all these things. Um, so right now we can start to dig in a little bit to the laundry list of what um, what was revealed to us by um, Trump winning the election to be president-elect now means that uh, there's a few things here. I mean, first of all, we already saw announcements about the Second Amendment thing. We saw speculation. I read an interesting article already um, about uh, a, a desire potentially to at least stop further regulation from things like Dodd-Frank Dodd from um, like any new regulations from coming. But we've also already read of speculation that Dodd-Frank and the CFPB might be blown up and we might just 
go on and reverse a lot of these regulations. And uh, man, that's enough to make your head spin right there. If we stop, take a little pause here and what these policy changes might mean. What do you think about that? The potential of Dodd-Frank? Uh, it was a lack of regulations that caused many of the problems that we have today. And it's a terrifying idea for most people, especially if you're within the industry, to believe that you might go on to repeal many of these fixes that Dodd-Frank did fix. Um, Dodd-Frank, by the way, a uh, funny thing, a week ago, um, you probably wouldn't find me being a very big proponent of Dodd-Frank. It's been hard. I mean, it's been for us to grapple with. It's, it's been, been eight years of, of constant change in our industry yeah, is what I and, feel like. And we finally are figuring out kind of how to operate within the confines. Well, um, last last October, we had the last piece of Dodd-Frank implemented into the mortgage world, at least. And that was the that was TRID. That was the TILA RESPA yeah, Integrated you, Disclosure. The, the combining of the good faith estimate and the truth in lending into the new loan estimate. And and so that was it. We've, we've now had a year where we've been told this is how the mortgage industry is going to operate going forward. You know, get used to this because this yeah. is how it is. And now it feels like, uh-oh, are we poised for more change, even if to it is retool unwinding again? It? <laughs> All the software, the compliance, the legal consult. I mean, so much time and energy is... Um, because look, for a company like us that are subject to these this regulatory environment um, and... Like I said before, I get it. I know how we got here. I totally get it. I understand it. And I'm going to argue that a lot of it is probably pretty darn necessary. Um, but that being said, we, we finally figured out how to operate within. Mm -hmm. And now the idea that it might change again or be disbanded and that that in and of itself is going to cause a fair amount of uncertainty. What's it going to mean? Um, and, and so I started to say a minute ago, if you'd, have, if you'd have checked in with me a year ago or two years ago or four years ago, I've always been of the mindset that um, the Dodd-Frank and CFPB, it's been a little far reaching. I get it. We need it. There's a lot of stuff that had to happen. We needed a lot of reform to prevent you know, the, the meltdown type of things, all the egregious investor greed and all these things that went into it. However... Some of the things we know that it did, though, the the great the greatest failure I think of Dodd Frank was fixing lender commissions on uh, every single file where you can't make more or less money depending on the criteria of a loan or borrower. And before you roll your eyes at me, one of the things I'm going to come off here and say, as an ethical, reputable, law-abiding lender. Sometimes we want to give a better deal. Sometimes somebody needs some help and we want to reduce fees. It may make the difference of them being able to qualify or it's for somebody that really has to have it. And you you lost your ability to sharpen the pencil and give somebody a significantly better deal in the same way you lost your ability to egregiously charge somebody more. And so that's kind of an unintended consequence. Um, and it's a complicated thing. Um and what I can tell you all is rest assured that that one size fits all commission resulted in increased costs to consumers across the board. Every lender in the nation, when forced to set that 
um, non-fluid profit margin they, had they to thought figure of out the worst case scenario. Yeah, they, they built and, profit to the worst case scenario, and yeah. that did not benefit the consumer. Um, I too realized that consumers are. I mean, we do. We've been doing this show now eight eight years. Yeah. Um, our our mission when we started this show was if you can be a resource and educate people to where they can't be taken advantage of and they recognize the benefit and reasons why you would shop and compare lenders, take a little bit of responsibility as a consumer when you get a two hundred or 500000 or million-dollar loan. When you go get these loans, know what you're doing. Don't just do it because it's your sister's cousin's boyfriend's dad that's a loan officer at some unnamed bank somewhere, Some you know, or just go, well, I go to Quicken because I liked their Super Bowl commercial. Um, but to rather to have a, a greater understanding of what goes into these things and, and what you need to know in order to um, – you know, to make good decisions. And and then more importantly, well, not more importantly, but equally importantly in the market, that ability to shop and make people compete for your business and be able to say, hey, well, look, I'm getting this over here and I'm getting this over here. Most companies today say, well, my hands are tied. So I used to be able to make, you know, some accommodation, some price concession, some way to win your business away from somebody else, which that was a great benefit to the consumer. And those went away by and large. Now all you can really do is go try to figure out what company has a better handle on their overhead and has a better structure where they represent more than one bank and and thereby can offer you uh, better, more attractive profit margins because they represent a bunch of different banks. It's sort of nice. I mean, and that's our structure. That's what we try to do. But it's not as good as me being able to say, well, this is my very best price bank and you need a little bit of help or concession. Sometimes we just want to buy a lock extension because the deal didn't come together because something the seller did or was unwilling to do or was out of town and was frustrating and the buyer's lock is now expiring because escrow has been extended. That's no fault to the buyer. Let me pay for that. As the, as the house, as the loan officer, let me take care of that so that I can insulate my client a little bit from financial damage to something that was out of his control. And that's a normal business decision that this reg- regulation sort of stripped away from us. Um, that being said, there's other lots of other great things about it. And so I'm going to go back to the original premise is now there's this talk that, that a Trump administration might mean the repeal of Dodd-Frank in its entirety. Markets do not like that. It's a it's a crazy thing. It's hard to digest what that means. We don't understand what the regulatory framework would then be under a Trump administration. And so we go, I don't know. That in and of itself is going to cause a little bit of scare that's going to push the bond market up. So that's one part of it. And we can, we can jump right to the next one is... Um, Yeah, great time to do a commercial break. Uh, Other things, though, that we'll talk about after the break are the other things about what this administration might do different than what we've seen for the last eight years that have all piled on why we're seeing these rates move right now. Um, There's been suggestion this week about whether or not Janet Yellen would be asked to resign. Um, So... Let's do a break. We'll come back. Obviously, we got a lot of ground to cover on today's show. So let's do this quick break. We'll get back and do more Mortgage Matters. 
Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending, host of Mortgage Matters on KVEC. As mortgage experts, we can help you refinance your home or investment property. We can lower your rate, shorten your term, or get rid of your mortgage insurance. Don't miss the opportunity to improve your financial situation. Call Central Coast Lending today. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 018-39608. NMLS number 328-358. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people. Agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. Welcome back. It's Veterans Day weekend. And once again, for all those that have served, thank you. Want to uh, continue this discussion a little bit. Once we hit the commercial break, you know, the microphone's turned off. Dan and I turned to each other and we started talking more about the Dodd-Frank thing. And, um, you know, a lot of it's kind of technical for us that are industry insiders. And, um, and as promised... Uh, I want to shift gears a little bit and move over into talking a little bit about the open market committee um, and, you know, what what this new presidency might mean in terms of the structure, direction, policy and function of our federal open market committee. And. um, Yeah. So on the campaign trail, I picked up. Tidbits along the way, and he talked about Dodd-Frank and a desire to um, appeal, repeal Dodd-Frank and um, make some changes there. He also talked a little bit about um, the current FOMC and its chair, Janet Yellen, and suggested that uh, he didn't like the course that was on. He suggested that the feds in their accommodative 
monetary policies that have gone on too long have sort of helped, I want to frame this the right way, helped sort of keep us from seeing the reality of how abysmal the Obama presidency was. He thinks that it's sort of been a, an ability to aid and abet the presidency of Obama's uh, administration and and hasn't really let us see what this economy is really doing because this accommodative policy has been going on so long that we're sort of blind to what's really going on. So so translation, normalize, normalizing interest rates would have produced even less growth, less economic activity, less of a recovery is yeah. what he's suggesting. Yeah, and, um, you know, it's a little bit which political, is, by the way. I was going to say, which is probably the reason for the accommodative policies to help things. Return employment back to the level where it is. It, right? That was the whole premise of Correct. TARP and all that stuff was sure. to jumpstart the economy. And so he's made these comments now. Trump's made the comment that um, he would prefer um, a Fed chair that was a little bit more aligned with his, um, and can't help but say it, his Republican ideals about what that chair and committee should be doing and deciding about the direction of monetary policy and how it leads the country out. And so um, here you go. If that means, and you use the appropriate word here is normalizing, because we agreed even during um, the the Obama administration, we've all agreed that interest rates are abnormally low. They're being held low. And that rather than talk about them in terms of we need to increase interest rates, we choose to use words like normalize. We need to get them back to normal if for no other reason than it's one of the most effective tools, as we all know, to um, thaw frozen credit markets, to to create opportunities for business to borrow and invest in in capital improvements and in inventories in infrastructure and in employees. Um, you have the ability, if you're at normal interest rates, you have the ability to sort of pull that lever, cut those rates, and spur that growth. If you ride all the way through an economic cycle with your interest rate held artificially low, the only way you have to go there is down. And at the current rate right now, which what, what's our target rate right now? Quarter to half percent? If we needed to carve out three points of interest rate, the only way you could do that would be going into negative interest rates, which has a whole host of problems in and of itself. So a Trump administration, right, wrong, or otherwise, is suggesting that what they want is higher interest rates where we can challenge this economy to grow under some more normal environment, normal interest rates, normal borrowing cost, um, and suggesting that with other policies such as um, and we're going to get to this in a minute, but tax cuts and stuff that other ways that you might grow the economy, not by having artificially low interest rates, would then suggest to all of us that the Trump administration equals higher interest rates. And so that's reason number two, that the bond market and these interest rates are chasing that a little bit is to say, hey, you guys have got four years coming of interest rates on the way up. We're going to start wearing this right now. Yeah, we all know he's not even going to have inauguration until late January. We all know that. That's stuff. That's not new information. Um, and by the way, going back to that Fed chair, 
Um, one of Trump's top financial or economic advisors, rather, said just yesterday that um, Trump was not interested in having Janet Yellen resign. He doesn't want her to resign. Her current term runs through February 2018. So she's got more than a year left um, where they'll be able to work together and um, figure out the sort of changing the direction. Um, that's a nice overlap. They did say, however, that they're not interested in her um, continuing, on. continuing on with that second term. So we get that. We understand that. I think it's unlikely that she resigns, honestly. Um, and so altogether, now, one of the criticisms that we'll just go ahead and throw in here, as long as we're just being open and honest, call a spade a spade, is um, there's been a big separation, an attempt to keep separated um, the Federal Open Market Committee from the politic affiliation, the, the party affiliation of the president and Congress. So if he's outright saying what we want is somebody in there, Republican, that more aligns with my ideals, is sort of starting to blur that line a little bit, which is, again, cause for concern, which, again, makes people double down on wanting to move that, um, you know, that that's what's driving these yields up. Well, I, I look at it like that's always been the case. There's always been some partisan aspect to the fed chairman because they are an appointed sure official it's just like it's like a supreme court nomination right it they have that leaning when they're because that's because it's a product of who's picking sure and so when that president is republican they're going to pick someone who leans their way but with once they're in that chair whether it be the supreme court or the fed chairmanship um once they're in there, they're free to do what they're going to do. Sure. And so we've seen people break from what you might expect based on who picked them and all that stuff. Yeah. And and the other thing I have to say about the FOMC is that this isn't a dic- this isn't like one person here who guides policy. It's a it's a board it's a committee. of of ten voting members, yep. and only one of those members is appointed by the president. The other nine, I act- I don't even know actually how those other nine come to sit in their chair well i think they're the um largely the um what's the right word the coo of some of the federal banks so they're they're the head of the federal bank of wherever and so then they get those chairs and um yeah they don't all vote but they all get to weigh in and talk and, and share opinions as everybody sorts this stuff through it's supposed to be one of these things that's sort of um, shaping the economy by way of indicative planning, you know, it's like we see the goal down there at the end and we don't all agree on the exact way to get to the goal of full employment and healthy inflation and all wage growth and all these things. We don't all agree on on how you get there, but most everybody agrees that those are those are similar goals, right? <laughs> let's let's go. Talk, if you wanted to line up on the the two, you know, our two-party system, Democrats and Republicans, do either one of these groups ever suggest that they don't want low unemployment, that they don't want full employment, that they don't want wage growth? I mean, this is something that everybody agrees on. So shaping these policies and, and kind of crafting the framework that gets us there in three months or six months or nine months and making these little tweaks to sort of to guide us on that path. Everybody has a different way of getting there. And so, uh, yeah, that's what you're going to see is I think a little bit of shaping here in terms. I, and I think probably what we're going to do is see it by, by the Trump 
um, appointment of the new Fed chair come next year. Um, but so anyway, that's kind of thing number two. It's big. It's a deal. It causes the financial markets to sort of say, hey, wait a minute. We didn't necessarily anticipate this. Um, our financial markets seem to have been very comfortable with the idea of Hillary coming in and being quite predictable. And instead, now we got the wild card in there that um, is going to be doing some things that strike many people as uh, kind of radical. And so um, we'll see. That's, that's another component of it. One of the other reasons why mortgage interest rates are going up. Um, we're getting to the point of taking the final commercial break of this hour. Um, and you know, there's, there's still a few more things to talk about in terms of what this Trump administration is going to mean to the economy, to employment, to housing, or what we think it's going to mean. Uh, one of the next things that we can discuss after this next quick break is about, um, some of the tax policies and what that is going to mean and how that also suggests that we're heading into an inflationary cycle, which again is going to cause higher interest rates. So we'll dig into that chunk after this next break. So stick with us here for more Mortgage Matters. Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending. I see you at our kids' Little League games. I bump into you at the grocery store, and it's always fun when we pass each other at Farmer's Market. I'm not a national bank or a faceless website. I'm a local lender, accountable, competitive, and ready to help. Call Central Coast Lending today. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543 Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 018 NMLS number 328-358. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley & Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley & Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley & Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. guys welcome back um ew. this is a lot 
this is a lot to get through and a lot to process and you guys could understand as we're just kind of scratching the surface here and um obviously we can't we can't delve through every nook and cranny here on a two-hour show but this is your post-election uh kind of update on what this stuff may mean for the economy um, and, and at least how we're digesting it in the mortgage world. So we're going to keep going right here. The next part that I want to um, jump to is a little bit about taxes. Um, Dan, you and I have had conversations throughout the campaigning here about taxes. Yeah. Um, great criticism has always been, or, you know, during this whole electionary cycle is we don't understand, like we all know Republicans want to cut taxes. I get it. You're going to cut taxes and, and generally you're going to cut taxes to rich people, but uh, you're going to cut taxes. And how is that going to affect us all? And, and the big criticism here, or at least misconception has been that um, a Trump presidency is going to affect our taxes, but we don't know how. And guys, I want to I want to start to 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 get into this a little bit, but I also want to remind you that as we start um, proposed changes to tax code are um, they're proposed, and whether your taxes are going to change, and then if so, how um, that's uncertain. The president doesn't just have the power to set tax policy. Uh, people don't understand this very well. So I just want to start very clearly by saying um, the president does not have the power to set tax policy or change tax rates. Um, our Constitution gives that power to Congress. So this is ultimately a congressional thing. That being said, um, Trump has a presidency where he gets to sort of suggest what his policy is. And uh, then Congress can go on and decide uh, what of Trump's wish list for these things they're going to take. So we're going to see some modified version of this. But let me tell you what his campaign tax proposal looks like, okay? This is what he talked about while campaigning. Um, ultimately, here's a quick rundown. There's seven tax brackets currently. We got tax brackets. I'm not going to read them all to you. You'll get lost in the mud. But they range from 10% up to 39.6%, okay? Out of those seven brackets, the current proposal is um, going to be to uh, cut those brackets down to what would be three brackets of taxes. And um, I noticed that it, it looks like it's a little bit of a blending. It looks like it smooths out the middle. Um, because, yeah, the proposal is to consolidate into three, right? Yeah. Three tax brackets. And so currently, the tax bracket of $18,550 up to $75,300 is a 15% tax bracket. So I'm going to round off so that you guys that are not looking at this visually can still track me. 18 to 75 grand is currently 15%. He wants to do zero to 75 grand at 12%. So those people that made less than 18 were supposed to be in a 10% bracket. They're going to get dragged up to 12, but the people from 18 to 75 um, that were at a 15 are going to um, move down. Move down. 
And that bucket under the Trump proposal is 75,000 to 225,000 moving to a 25% bucket. If you're currently in a $225,000 income range, you're paying 28%. So you would experience a slight cut down to 3%. Um, And by the way, we see an awful lot of taxes through the company. There's not a whole lot of married filing joints that are greater than $225,000. The next bucket under the current plan... Two hundred and thirty to four hundred and thirteen thousand dollars. Those guys are paying thirty five percent. So again, they're going to enjoy a little cut because under the new plan, everything north of two hundred and twenty five thousand dollars married filing joint is at a tax rate of thirty three percent. So thirty three. So it goes up by two percent for some. Yep. And so then, and then the people that are making four thirteen to four hundred and sixty seven thousand dollars a year, they were paying thirty five. They're going to pay thirty three. And then the above four hundred and sixty seven thousand dollar bucket is currently at thirty nine. They're going to be paying thirty three. So it's sort of a smoothing out in an attempt to get everybody there into the middle. Um, if you're, it's fifteen twenty five thirty three. Twelve. 25, uh, 33. 12, 25, And 33. what we did away with was 10, 15, 25, 28, 33, 35, 39.6. So you're just sort of smoothing it out. Um, and ultimately, there in the middle, uh, it depends where you lie, if you're going to be 2% less or 10% more or uh, whatever. But um, th- I'm, So I'm, is the only category that's seeing a rate increase the zero to what did you say? Zero to to eighteen thousand. That's the only. They're going increase. from a ten percent to a twelve percent. Um, folks that are making eighteen to seventy five thousand have been paying fifteen percent. So they're going down. They're going down. And to in 12. those other middle and upper categories, everybody's going down. Um, the seventy five to one fifty one crew is at twenty five percent right now, and they're going to stay at twenty five percent. Okay, and so. Um, no one, no one else is going higher. No one else is going higher. Okay. Um, and then, of course, the people that are making more than two hundred twenty-five thousand are going to come down a little bit. So that's cool. I mean, who doesn't want to pay a little bit less? That well, sounds great. Well, and this is going to catch the majority of people, right? Because this is married filing jointly numbers of households making up to two hundred twenty-five thousand dollars. It's not quite the, um, you know, you heard all that stuff. Oh, Trump just going to cut all the taxes of the rich people. Yeah, you know what? Those people that were up higher, the 35 and 39% buckets, the people that are making, you know, 231 to 400, 500, a million, $10 million, they're going from 39 to 33. And I don't think that's a large percent of the population. Um so anyways, Isn't it like 1%? <laughs> so we've been led to believe. I, I don't know. Um, but so anyway. So, but then the other big proposal was to cut the corporate taxes, right? From 35 to 15, something yeah, like that. Yeah, and I've seen some other parts about how. Um, so secondly, uh, before we hop right into that, I want to say some of the other things about what, what this is going to change for people. If you've got um, a deduction for child care. Or um, 
somebody with a dependent, such as a um, a child with disability, even an even an adult dependent with disability, or grandparents that you're taking in um, that just need your care. There's a lot of dependent care savings that are getting proposed in this plan too. Um, I was frustrated by this a couple years ago. Was um, for most of most of my life, we've been uh, made the sacrifices and worked really hard to have my wife able to be a hundred percent stay-at-home mom. Not always the case, but um, largely it was. Yet when when the kids were like in the pre-K, like you know that three four years old. See, my wife's also an early childhood education major from Cal Poly. And so we understand the significance of having your kid in a program developmentally to get along. I mean, as you're learning right now, Dan, um, it also works to help build your immune system. (laughs) Yes. Um, There's a lot of things that your child gets in those um, those those programs where they learn those social skills, they learn how to respect an authoritarian figure that's not mom or dad or or grandma or whoever else might be um, giving a lot of the primary care to these kids. There's a lot that goes into it, and we found it critical, okay? So with all of our kids, we paid, though my wife was there at home, we paid to have our kids put into those programs. I was never able to expense any of those dollars, because they said, well, if you don't have a W-2, if you have a stay-at-home parent, that's an elective cost and you don't get to write it off. I always thought, man, that's really that really bugs me. I have this cost just like everybody else. Are you suggesting that I don't make sacrifice? Our family doesn't make sacrifice to be able to take my wife out of the workforce and, you know, not have some job with... Because we've, we've been, you know, I'm looking at you, I'm talking to you. We've been self-employed. I would, I could have had her work at the school district and get sweet benefits for the family. And it would have far exceeded what our daycare costs would have been. We made sacrifices to allow her to be home. I wanted to be able to write that off and I couldn't. So this is a proposal where I could. Um, I don't have those costs anymore, by the way. So <laughs> just in <laughs> You'll time. get to write them off. Just in time. Um, but yeah, and then also... There's other parts of the tax proposal which have to do with, um, oh, I just, as I was reading right now, going back to my notes, I'm like, the other piece is the Affordable Care Act, which is another big part of um, what this administration- One at a time. Yeah. Take it in steps. We're going to have to talk about that one after the break. Um, But yeah, there's been some talk about changing the corporate tax structure in a desire to get some of those corporations to come back. Um, I, I've read and heard about some or proposals to stop any others from thinking the grass is greener elsewhere to go. Um, and so anyway, th- there's, so here's what I want to say. We're talking a lot about rate cuts. Yeah. I've been paying taxes long enough. I see what's going on. Who actually pays the exact rate of the bucket they're in? Not many people because there's a write off here. There's expenses there. I mean, that's what I think frustrates a lot of people, regardless of partisanship, is that, you know, yeah, I may be in this particular tax bucket and that's fine and dandy, but it's frustrating when you see someone making more money than you that's theoretically supposed to be in a higher tax bracket than you paying a lower effective tax rate than you are. Well, And yes, dollars-wise, they might be paying more, but percentage-wise, they're paying a lot less, and that's always frustrating. 
Yeah, well, the, under the current um, proposed tax plan here, um, there has been talk about um, couples and head of household folks losing personal exemptions and losing ability to itemize some deductions too. So, um, and what you're talking about, that's one of those things where, and again, I see this regularly because I deal in people's tax returns every day. Um, it can be quite a frustrating thing when you see how good these people are at taking advantage of tax loopholes. And I'm not limiting it to just people either. Companies. Yeah, it's frustrating sure. when you hear things like, you know, big companies like a GE or whatever, they pay, you know, a 0% tax rate. You know, that's frustrating. Yeah. That's frustrating for the average citizen out there who's making, you know, a nice fifty, sixty thousand $60,000 a year wage, and they're paying their 20-some-odd percent, and then there's the big billion-dollar multinational company paying zero. That's sure. frustrating. So we talked a little bit about the tax stuff. And again, you know, I, I want to circle back to the front part of this where I said to you guys, it's the Constitution that gives the power to set these plans to Congress. It's The president can suggest it, and they probably want to get behind him um, because – Today, we got a lot of people that are unhappy with the outcome of the election, and I get it. I understand why you're scared. I understand why you're upset. I understand why you're frustrated. I understand why you're moving for a Cal exit from the United States. I understand that all of these emotions and all this stuff running all over the place, but here's the deal, and this is the way Congress is going to look at it too, is that the country elected, elected Donald Trump to be the next president of the United States He's got a vision. He ran on that vision. And they want to get behind him on some of these policies to give him his best chance at doing what he says he could do, which is affect a real change. To change, this was a change cycle election, and it was an opportunity for him to come up with a plan. And everybody now, since it's happened, it's sort of like, well, let's see. Does that work? I mean, Dan and I have stood in the parking lot more than once debating the effect of things like stimulus and policy and tax cuts and all these different things. It's really interesting. And again, we all agree on where we want the economy to go, where we disagree is on how we want it to get there. And so now we have a president-elect that's got a real vision. It actually has been pretty well spelled out. Yeah, we got to see some critical appointments. We got to see the policy change. Now we understand that there's a majority in Congress that are likely to back these things. It's time to see if they're going to play out. Is it going to work? Um, again, I get it. You're scared. You're frustrated. We're all a little freaked out. You freaked out? I'm freaked out. Are you I'm freaked a little out? freaked out. I'm freaked out. This yeah. is crazy. Dude was on The Apprentice. He ran The Apprentice. Uh, and now he's running the country. Um, so, but point being, a lot of these changes are likely to happen. Yeah. These will become tax code. Congress probably will back these plays. They're probably going to get morphed a little bit, but Congress will back these plays to to let that horse run. Can mm. can this horse win? Is it the right play? Um, only time will tell. Can I say um, something from yeah. The Apprentice? Okay. <laughs> if If we don't like it. We have a chance to say you're fired to Donald Trump in four Absolutely. years. Absolutely. Sure. And you know what? Um, I heard a whole bunch of speculation on how this dude got elected. I've heard it all. I don't even want to go back through the whole thing. But here's the deal. If you don't like it, get involved. 
Mm-hmm. You can put the Democrats can start their campaigning right now. Who are the people? Who's it going to well, be? The no, let's not. The <laughs> yeah, <laughs> let's right? not for a while. The beautiful thing about the system is it's designed with checks and balances, yeah. right? And even though you have a Republican majority in the Senate and the House, and that mm-hmm. means that it's probably a streamlining for Republican policy to to take place, to, for those kind of changes to take place. There's still, you know, as as much of a wild card as President-elect Trump is, there's people that aren't as much of a wild card that hold the oh, yeah. House and the Senate seats. And you can kind of count on what their thought process is. And a lot of them is. are up for re-election in two years. Right. They can lose. If you go do a bunch of extreme things right now and back this guy <clears throat> that didn't have a lot of even Republican Party support. I mean, the dude was pretty anti-establishment all the way through. If they all just go extreme and let him have his way willy-nilly with everything, there's going to be a gutting in two years. And I think many of these people recognize that it's time actually to to weigh these things out. That being said, it's interesting. It's been since 1928 that somebody's had that much control. And when you look at um, the way that this is likely to go, you're not going to be able to argue that that gridlocking and blocking somebody's agenda um, was the main reason why they didn't get to fulfill their campaign promises. So we're going to see before we go. We have like less than two minutes here to the top of the hour break. I brought this all up on the tax codes because this is point number three about how the bond market has reacted and why is that these tax cuts, these changes, um, they're supposed to, they're designed to foster on inflation. At their very core, that trickle-down type of theory is supposed to give you, the consumer, more money to pocket, to reinvest, to hire more people, to grow the capital and the inventories of your company, to put money into research and development, do all these things in an inflationary environment with rising interest rates. And so if that works, we're getting out a little bit of ahead of ourselves here, but we're basically already seeing the bond yields move to a place that reflects what that inflationary cycle means. So that's point number three to that. We got a top of the hour commercial break coming. In the next hour, there's more to talk about. We have, of course, a little bit of the Affordable Care Act to talk about. There's other things. Plus, there's also some housing data. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is another interesting one to talk about. What's going to happen with Fannie? What's going to happen with Freddie? Are those going to remain? Ah, so much to talk about, guys. We got a little break here and then another hour of Mortgage Matters, and we hope you'll stick around. You're listening to Mortgage Matters on KVEC News Talk 920. If you missed any part of the show, log on to centralcoastlending.com for archived shows and more. Now, back to your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. everyone 
If you missed the first hour, we've spent a lot of today's program trying to dissect and analyze, I guess at its core, why the markets have reacted the way they have and um, some of these economic going uh, economics going forward of what this new administration is going to look like. Um, the next hour, we got a little bit more of the same. Um, I got a few more components to it that I, I'm wanting to talk about. Uh, one of which we're going to have to talk about in a little bit here is weed. <laughs> Don't laugh. This is serious stuff. Our state just voted to legalize recreational marijuana. Um, that, of course, uh, and by the way, I think it was on it was on the ballot here for eight or nine other states. I think it passed all but one. Arizona yeah. did not pass it, I don't believe. Yeah, Arizona didn't pass it. So, um, U.S. is loving their weed, <laughs> and um, you may not think that it ties right here into this presidential election, but it does. And so, we're going to talk a little bit about that later. Um, also, I want to talk ever so briefly, another one of the things here, I, I, I don't see how this has a, a significant impact on the economy other than to people's pocketbooks, uh, regardless of your um, political affiliation. I think everybody I know is pretty frustrated right now with the Affordable Care Act. That's for sure. It's expensive. It's gone up every year for a long time, <laughs> for as long as it's been Well, here. and it's in like year six now, and we don't even, it doesn't feel that old to me because they adopted and then we had to see what it looked like and then it had to get implemented and then there was a year where you got to keep your old plan while you sort of moved towards it yeah i think our experience with it was that what we we made a conversion in our company to reclassify people from independent contractors to employees because we wanted to offer health care mm-hmm. as a benefit and so in 2012 that's when we did it but we that was i think we were allowed to grandfather for years i don't know that we fully became a part of affordable care act until like 2013 or maybe even 14 yeah yeah and think, so we've had I, two or three years of experience i think it was january it. of 14 we've had two or three years of experience with it we've seen it increase about 25 percent each year and it's it feels expensive and it and the care doesn't necessarily feel like the care that i remember getting growing up right well feels expensive i'll throw this out there uh, my dad was self-employed for most of my life, and I grew up, I never had health care. We never had health care. Well, I had that good state stuff. Yeah. Good for you. <laughs> good old Kaiser. That's probably why your teeth look so nice. <laughs> I don't have bad teeth, by the way. There's a little crooked. Uh, anyway, um, I, we never had health care growing up. wasn't a thing. My, my family couldn't afford it. We were like working... Working class family, man. My dad hustled hard to provide for us. Uh, unbelievable work ethic, always has. We didn't have health care. Um, trips to the ER, sure. Some broken bones, sure. Nothing very major. When my baby brother was a kid, he had appendicitis that like perforated and leaked and caused him to need to be hospitalized. And then, um, of course, he didn't have insurance then either. And so... Um, you know, they had to settle it and pay a pretty, pretty outrageous bill. But my dad joked that it, that bill was out of having four boys. That was the biggest health expense, health related expense that he had ever incurred and broke it down to what the premium would have been if he had been insured for those like, you know, 18 years and said he was way ahead of the game. So anyway, I never had health insurance this year. 
I'm feeling burned. We had like wifey to the ER, son to the ER, stitches, all these different little things. And every time I turn around, guess what my affordable care covered? Like nothing. When I say nothing, I'm exaggerating a little bit. It covered a little bit, but nothing. For real, the amount of money we're paying, nothing. I was so frustrated with it. So one of the things that Trump campaigned on was a repeal and replace Obamacare. Um, Now, he almost seems like he's backing off that a little bit. It's not quite so easy to just totally scrap Obamacare. Um, And by the way, in that whole um, public approval rating and sentiment, how popular are you going to be if you just go strip this thing out? Um, 20 million people that are currently covered under affordable care lose it. Um, or if you went back to the old thing of companies being able to exclude over pre-existing conditions, that's not a popular place to be. That's not a good thing. No, I don't think anybody thinks so. So there's a lot of work to do ahead of that. Um, the amount of a premiums and the, how substantial it is, it's like your second biggest bill besides your mortgage, uh, for most people and families, um, a lot of attention needs to be paid there. So we're going to see what happens there. It's obviously going to have some impact on us economically. Um, if it turns out to be something where premiums are increased or reduced or taxes change, if we, I, maybe we come out next year with the national health care plan that we all think we were heading towards. I don't know what it's going to be. You don't know what it's going to be. Truth be told, I don't think Trump knows what it's going to be, uh, but they're going to be working on that. So that's things to come. Um, it sounds like some of the the latest statements are that the repeal and replace may not actually occur. That's more of a modification of existing. And I saw that a couple of the parts of the Affordable Care Act that he actually liked and maybe wanted to keep were don't allow people with pre-existing or don't you know deny coverage to people with pre-existing conditions. I mean, wasn't that wasn't that like the core issue? For me, I it was. I always thought so. That's what it me, felt it like to me. Because it was hard. That, and that was one of the reasons why we made the change yeah. in our company. We have people who work for us who have pre existing conditions. And these are people. And couldn't get insurance. So that's why we signed up for group insurance. These are people that we love. Yeah. I mean, and they're, they're members of our community that we all love. These are people that um, you cannot look at these people and say, you don't deserve health care. Right. Nobody can. Um, the challenging thing is. When you allow the sick people to become a part of insurance, you need participation out of the well people. <laughs> That's right. how it works. Yeah. And one of the things that, you know, I, I, I don't profess to be an expert of, of the Affordable Care Act, but I'll tell you this, the penalty to the people that aren't participating is so much less than the bronze plan premium amounts would be that too many people have elected to just say, yeah, I don't know. And I don't care. And that's and then, what, one and, of the reasons that costs seem to be going up. Of, it's a significant reason. And, and the big thing is off time, these people find out, Hey, well, you were going to get a tax refund of $3,000 this year and said, you're getting a tax refund of $2,300 because we're taking your, your penalty for the affordable care act. Um, geez, what a mess. So you got to figure out how to do that. You got to figure out how to make the penalty sufficient enough that everybody does join. Um, but then, of course, you're running into the fact that when it's an egregious penalty, 
that's where people then step in and say, well, it's not insurance if it's not elective. And um, then it's taxation and it gets into this whole other world. So obviously very complicated, much like all the rest of this stuff. Um, but he campaigned upon bringing real change to that. So we're all going to hold him accountable to it, aren't we? Uh, we And we hope that they um, figure out how to make it, how to how to put some fixes in place that keep people insured that need to be insured. But let's also figure out how to reduce the premiums um, or at a minimum, if I got to keep paying this, give me some benefit. When I got to, when I got to pay my kids bill at the ER, a thousand bucks for three stitches because my affordable care act didn't cover stitches at the emergency room. That's absurd. And they said, Oh, well you got to meet your deductible nuts. The deductibles all went up. How about eliminating the deductibles and the co-pays? Well, yeah. What happened to like the 80-20 split until the deductible was reached and then it's all eliminated and they have to cover all of it, period. And I got like three of those visits back to back to back, which then also got coupled together with some dentist things and then some eye things. I mean, I, I threw so much money down that hole this year that I'm like, really? Yeah. Every time they turn around, the premiums are going up 25% more. And then when we finally used the stupid thing, I had to pay through the freaking nose to have it. Really? This is what yeah. the greatest country on earth is able to do for me. So it's not re- a fan yeah. right now. It only feels like it's effective for catastrophic fix things. Yeah, fix it. So otherwise, you're paying until you meet the deductible. Yeah, but I'm paying <laughs> like a Cobra-style <laughs> premium from yesteryear right. for now what is a catastrophic policy. But hey, the good news is... If you have like cancer, you're just going to have to meet your 6,500 out of pocket deductible. And then you're going to be real happy you have this thing. Right. It's like, yeah, well, that's catastrophic, you guys. I need, I, I, I need knock every on day, wood. I, ha- I have I kids hope... and they do dumb things. Yeah, coverage. they skateboard and scooter and jump on the trampoline. And every now and again, somebody comes in with teeth through their lip. <laughs> right. like, they've been running through the house a thousand times when oh, they've been told not to and bang oh their head on yeah. a chair and split I it open. I have three there little monkeys is. jumping there on is, a bed. Right. Well, I need lucky for you, with that. I put a tooth through my lip a couple, what, a year ago? Yeah. So I know how to fix it with super glue. I'll... I'll show you my trick. Then yeah. I'll save you on that copay and the. <laughs> I remember you coming in with that fat lip. I believe. <laughs> yeah. Um, no doubt you guys have seen these articles. They're out there. They're all over the place right now. Is that Trump's facing a rude awakening with? And maybe this is why he's starting to kind of to backtrack a little bit on that campaign promise of "I will repeal and replace in the first hundred days." Uh, Maybe you should have studied up a little bit harder on uh, what you're going to be able to do here. Takes a greater Congress vote than you think, more than the margin you suspect to have control over to just mm-hmm. fully repeal the thing. So, well, and it's going to be interesting to see how it all works anyway, Jason, because, and I, I hate to, uh, to interject, hopefully it's all right, but it's fine. Um, yeah. the, the fact Anytime. of the matter is like Mike Ryan doesn't like Donald Trump that much. And Paul he Ryan. got Paul, uh, Paul Ryan. Ryan. I'm sorry, Paul Ryan. And he, um, you know, and he's been reelected, and he's Speaker of the House. Amen. And he's a Republican. We stood so, out, we stood outside last week and talked, and uh, yeah. <clears throat> I had some significant hangups over the Democratic nominee of Secretary Clinton on account of the I I was a pretty prudent follower of the WikiLeaks and the controversies. And mm-hmm. I did, I saw, um, I, I believed hook, line and sinker in the pay to play things and getting those high dollar 
speeches and just all the stuff. I just I thought, man, she's deep in the weeds of of the private money funding side of this stuff. It was a really big hang up for me. But we sat around and we talked about it in the parking lot. You know, one of the takeaways where we we got into our trucks and drove away after a very civil conversation was, um, you know, this dude, this Mr. Trump guy that, you know, and again, I'm going to say this again. I know you're scared and angry and frustrated. All these things. I am too. But this dude didn't have like a single corporation liking him. He doesn't have a single foreign government. Well, I mean, there's been that speculation about like Russia and stuff, but a lot of that I think was just a little bit of echo room noise. He at least asserts that he doesn't know Putin and hasn't had all these involvements, things like that, but he doesn't have gross campaign contributions from foreign right, exactly, governments and all exactly. these other things. I really honestly believe that this dude doesn't have many friends. And even if you voted for the guy, when you sit down and you look, you say he said a lot of really dumb crap. Oh, yeah, he did. Basically, some of the dumbest crap that anybody's ever said on camera, yeah. especially running for uh, office of the highest position in the world. This dude said some seriously <laughs> dumb stuff. Yeah. And from that standpoint, I don't think anybody expects that he has friends in Congress, whether it's a majority leader or a minority leader. I don't think anybody expects that he's got friends in corporate America. I don't think anybody expects that he's got friends in the health insurance companies. I don't think anybody expects any of that stuff. So one of the things that we're all sort of hoping is, all right, well, you ran on the platform of being the outsider, pulled a pretty good hat trick, and you won. You better get in there and be a real outsider now. And so... Oh yeah! I can you imagine like the? the can you imagine like the health insurance company kind of stonewalling the whole reform thing because they don't like him, and they want different. They want a different person at the. I don't think it's going to matter. Yeah, I don't. Know. I don't think it's going to matter. But yeah, you know, we're starting to touch into some of these things that are making it political. I said we weren't going to do that, so let's steer clear of it again. Yeah. Um, it's time for a commercial break. When we get back. <laughs> Uh, we have interesting timing right now. Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac have been in governor, uh, government conservatorship now since 2008. That's a pretty good run. We just had third quarter profits. They've paid their dividends to the Treasury yet again. So we've got some amounts of what that is. Um, it's no secret that we need to decide what to do with Fannie and Freddie. And it has been a pretty political thing. So when we get back, we're going to cover a little bit about bringing you guys up to speed on what's been going on with Fannie and Freddie, how much money that relationship is worth right now, and what their likely outcome is due to this new Trump presidency. So stick around after this short break for more Mortgage Matters. To ask a question or make a comment, call 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Mortgage Matters on KBEC News Talk 920. We'll be back after these messages from our sponsors. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. This is Jason Grody with Central Coast Lending. Give yourself the best possible chance to buy your dream home with our 21-day close. We get you fully pre-approved before you find your house so you can write a shorter, easier offer and beat out the competition. It's time for you to be the offer that gets accepted. Call Central Coast Lending today. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543 
Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is an equal housing opportunity real estate broker. California Bureau of Real Estate number 01839608. NMLS number 328358. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley and Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley and Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley and Blakesley for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. Welcome back. You're listening to Mortgage Matters with hosts Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending. If you want to join the conversation, call the show at 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. Now, here's Dan and Jason. the first commercial break of this hour we're only gonna have one more probably two more good segments to get through Eh, maybe more um still gotta talk about weed that's coming (laughs) (laughs) that's coming we'll talk about that in a minute um as promised i'd like to jump on in here and talk a little bit about fannie mae and freddie mac uh right when we started this show eight eight plus years ago was right about the time actually that Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac were under some uh pretty big turmoil. Um man, we did show after show after show about trying to help align uh the general public sentiment over Fannie and Freddie to what was going on at the time and how I don't ever I, Fannie Mae wasn't to blame over the housing crisis. They got blamed. Um, in fact, it was one of those things where the drive-by media sort of helped just keep that idea circulating of like, hey, look, Fannie Mae did all these egregious things and um, yada, yada. One of, the, one of the things I remember at the time that struck me, still true to this day, um, I'm frustrated with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac because for years their stock value was high. They were killing it. They were making a killing and banking profit was private and they were banking massive amounts of profit when they hit the skids and were, um, turns out they should have kept a bunch of that money in reserves to be able to weather a downturn it turns out that those big CEO pays and all the crazy expenses that the companies had, Fannie and Freddie, all the way from the top down, um, they didn't save enough. And then they turned to the taxpayer to bail them out. And and we did. We bailed them out, and uh, it was expensive. It was really expensive, in fact. Um, wanted, to, wanted to start there and kind of share that with you. Fannie Mae... 
who, by the way, in the agency ratios, you got Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. They make up about 75% Fannie and 25% Freddie. That's about, that's about the breakdown. Of course, it up and downs a little bit. That's probably still true today. Probably about 80-20. Fannie Mae, during the course of the financial downturn, as they were taken into conservatorship, drew $117.1 billion in support from the taxpayers by way of the Treasury. Oh, we get kind of numbed all these zeros, huh? Well, millions or billions or trillions? <laughs> um, billions, you say? $117 billion? That's not even that much. I think the, I think the, I think the federal debt just went up that much by interest since we started the show. <laughs> Twenty trillion dollars. Anyways, hundred seventeen billion dollars. That's a lot of money, you guys. That's a ton of money. How much have they paid back? You ask. Do you do you have the stats in front of you? Can I beg you a trivia question? Go for it. You know how much. So Fannie, t- I already gave you the answer to the first part. They took $117 billion in support from the uh, Treasury. Do you know how much they've paid back of the $117 billion? Well, I know they've paid all of it back and then some. And then some. Um, the number, I guess I won't trap you since we're here live on the air. The number is $154.4 billion. I was going to say 150 because it's just a nice round number. Nice round number. Yeah. That's a lot of money, you guys. $154 billion. As you said, they paid back all of their principal. And now they've paid um, a pretty handsome, oh, what is that, $37 billion on top? That's some ROI, dude. That's a 30% <laughs> return on investment. I like it. Um, for the third quarter, we just got these readings last week. Um, for the third quarter, they made a dividend to the Treasury of another $3 billion. That's pretty good, quarterly revenue. Hey, we did pretty good, you guys. Just it's like the, you know, the boss man coming through to empty the coffers at the end of the week. I'm gonna go make the bank deposit. We did good. We we functioned at a profit this quarter. Here's three billion bucks. That's going into the back into the treasury. It's gonna get. Um, I don't think any of us have a very clear understanding of where that money goes. Yeah. It's probably just trying to pay down that interest number that's reeling. Um, but at any rate, um, before we talk about what it means politically going forward for Fannie. I just want to give you the the other side here, the picture of Freddie Mac. Fannie's cohort, Freddie Mac, likewise is under conservatorship still since 2008. They've taken in a total of $71.3 billion. A little bit of a head scratcher, huh? If they're only 20% of the overall market, why did they get such a greater share of bailout number? I guess the cuts were a little deeper in Freddie. Maybe because they didn't have quite the portfolio of stability. So because they had a smaller portfolio, the cuts were deeper. I don't know. All speculation at this point. Um, What did they pay back? About 100? They've paid back... um, 100 billion? Yeah. Well... They just threw back their third quarter check to the Treasury was $2.3 billion. So they're paying back at a pretty good pace, too. Um, they're at $101.4 billion. So yeah. they've done pretty good, too. In fact, they've paid $30 billion in. So they took 70 and paid 30 Fannie took 117 and paid 37 
they're a better bet all around. They took some <laughs> deeper cuts, but they also healed faster. And again, perhaps it's due to lighter volume. Okay. Anyway, so that's great. Let's talk real quick about this because this is political, isn't it? Every time you've seen the discussion about what should happen with Fannie or Freddie, uh, how long can you keep these private enterprises under conservatorship, and what are you going to do? Well, for the last year here, maybe even two years, uh, we just sort of kicked this can down the road because it is a political issue. Because here's the deal. Um, Well, I'm just going to come right out and say it. Uh, all of the support, everything I've seen for Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac being broken up, dismembered, and, and blasted into pieces has come from Republican support. And for the others, which say, hey, hang on a second, this is a pretty good source of funding. It's nice to have this control. Basically being run by the government, it's making a lot of money. We know that now. The proof's yeah. in the pudding. Well, for if, if the government's going to be on the hook when it goes bad, shouldn't the government yeah. to take advantage of the good times? As I started out earlier, we had private profits and then public losses. In retrospect, we know that the 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 um, the profit was now made public, and it's more than made up for the losses we occurred. There was no guarantee that was going to happen. All of the opponents to taking Fannie and Freddie into conservatorship at the time suggested that it was money going to be thrown down a hole and never coming back. So... In retrospect, now we know we got our money back. We also know that we've got a 25 to 30% return on investment. So let's zoom out a little bit right now, okay? Um, Dan, I'll ask you to make the case. Why do we even need it? Tired of it. Fannie and Freddie. Let's take take that money out of it. We made an investment in it. We got it back. The housing economy is stable now. Equities back, loans are under control, the appraisal process is good, Dodd-Frank and all this regulation has taken a lot of the risk out of the mortgage market. Why do I need, as a, just a, a tax-paying citizen of the United States, why do I need my government to be in control of Fannie Mae right now? I don't want it. I'm done with it. Make the case. I mean, the purpose of Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac is to provide long-term fixed interest rates. Prior to their existence, banks made mortgage loans to people, and banks didn't like the idea of extending a 30-year fixed-rate mortgage. Fine to give you a a five-year mortgage amortized over 30 years, and then it'll adjust after five years, but they have no idea what rates are going to do over the course of 30 years, and plus hanging on to that that debt for, or that lie, I guess for them, it's an asset, but hanging on to that for that whole time, it ties up their cash and their ability to make loans. Banks are in the process of making loans and making more loans and making more loans and having them pay off and that. And so Fannie and Freddie provide a secondary market for mortgage-backed securities. They provide a, a marketplace for banks to go sell the mortgages they make and provide themselves liquidity to go out and make more mortgages and for those people who enjoy a fixed rate mortgage, you want Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. Without them, we're probably all relying on adjustable rate mortgages that are fixed for one, three, or five years. And that's, you know, probably it. Yeah, the only thing I'd add back to that is you go back and look at why Fannie was created back when it was, is that you hit it, but for me, you, you skipped a, a critical step in there, which was 
going back to like 1929, okay, one of the problems was there was a run on the bank deposits. There was a liquidity crisis. And most of the banks that made these loans had clauses in the that said, hey, regardless of the loan's performance, if we down here at First Bank of San Luis Obispo have an issue where we need that money back from you, you're going to have to pay it back. And um, so basically it was like an acceleration clause in there saying that if the bank needed that money to meet deposit demands, that you had to give it back. What if you didn't have it to give back? Like you financed the farm or the house or whatever, and you didn't have it. Um, well, today we tackle that by the bank is able to throw that in a pool and sell it to somebody else. And what Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac did was it provided the framework where everybody in the country, no matter where you are, the guidelines of the credit decisions, the character, credit, collateral decisions of every loan are perfectly understood. I don't have to worry. If I buy a loan from you in New York, I've never been to New York. I don't know what a row house down on the Bronx means for my investment, but if you tell me you followed the Fannie Mae rules, I have perfect confidence in it now. I know how you evaluated credit worthiness. I know how you addressed uh, adjustments on the appraisal, right? I, I have a very high level of confidence now. So if there's a run on deposits in my bank, I can go into that secondary market that you've des described and say, hey... I need money bad tonight from another bank. Uh, 500 grand just got asked for for my guy. We gave him, you know, 24 hours to hand him his 500 grand. So I need to sell this loan. And it's a Fannie Mae loan. That's the top of the stack of all the papers in the pile. And so then you go, yeah, we'll buy that. No problem. We actually have the opposite. We've got more cash than we're supposed to have right now. We'd love to have that asset of uh, interest income take it on our books. So it creates that full ability for all these banks to be able to trade freely between one another. And if we blew them up tomorrow, like many of the Republicans suggest, then what? Man, five steps backwards. We don't know now. If you have a problem, I can, hey, I need to sell a loan for this row house in the Bronx. Well, what rules did you follow? Oh, there are rules. Underwriting guidelines can be 15,000 pages. There, do, do you need to read them real quick before you buy this loan in the morning? Because I need to sell it tonight. Nobody's going to do that. That that freezes credit markets in a big way. Um, and then over time, of course, like you said, we have long-term fixed-rate mortgages. That's created some real affordability. <laughs> if you didn't have that, um, then what? Would that undermine the overall strength of the housing economy? I'm going to venture to say, you bet it will. Um, absolutely it will. So uh, there's been some proposals made, by the way, of how you deal with it. Some of them have suggested that um, you take Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac and you turn them into a public utility. Basically allow them to be publicly owned. Allow them continue on providing that framework, that DNA for loans so that we all know how they're, how they're built from the inside out. And then um, have all of that under regulatory environment that's uh, overseen by the government. And then those profits and losses become something that's sort of made public. And right now, as we know, it's worth gobs of money. I mean, it's worth 30% return. Have you made 30% on anything in the last four years? <laughs> um, 
flip side of the coin is to say, well, we don't know. But it, they're insolvent. They're in conservatorship. We're certainly not just going to go give them back. So just blow them up. Just disband them. Let the free market figure out what to put in its place. That seems pretty reckless to me. Uh, didn't we just try that? Oh, my goodness. <laughs> we have. Um, so anyway, it'll be really interesting. Um, I don't recall. I, I mean, I, and I, watched a, I watched and read a lot during the campaign process out of both sides. I don't recall Trump addressing what he wants to do with Fannie Mae and Freddie Mac. I never heard that either. Me either. So here's a wrinkle, though. This dude grew up in real estate, real estate investments, real estate holdings, development. Obviously, he's been around and has some top advisors that are going to talk to him about mortgages and what this all means. They're going to have to figure out what they're going to do with it and... Like I said, the can's been kicked down the road for the last couple of years because it was a politically charged issue. Well, guess what? We got past that now. The president-elect is going to be uh, sworn in here in a, in a little while, and it's got some real work ahead of him. It'll be really interesting to see what happens with Fannie and Freddie Mac. This is another reason, by the way, that I think a little bit of the bond market is freaking out and rates are sort of heading up because it's like, well, we don't know what this means either. You know, basically, there's a whole lot of uncertainty. We started the show by saying there was a lot of things that have been um, just sort of we were comfortable and knew what to expect under Clinton becoming president. Yeah, Trump's been that like antagonistic dude opposing her for a while. Nobody was confident. The the financial markets, at least, were not confident that he would win. We would have we wouldn't be in the boat we're in today if anybody was like, "Oh yeah, no, this guy could win." It was basically like from day one, this guy's a joke. He can't win. He's running against thirteen other people. He can't win. Oh crap! He just got the party's nomination. Oh my god! Look at all this dumb crap he says. He can't win. Leading into the days before the election, the markets were saying this guy can't win. This is our horse. We know what we get with her. Here we go. When we started counting ballots and they said, oh, crap, this guy could win. And then by the end of the night, they said, holy crap, this guy won. And then you saw the market just go into sheer turmoil. That's what we've been wrestling all week. The thing that's kind of got my head spinning is usually with uncertainty, you see money go into into the bond market. You yep. see yields go down yep the opposite is happening here so is it safe to say that the opposite is happening here solely because of the prospects of an inflationary cycle that we're about to enter into do you think that that if if it was a more predictable Republican president-elect that bond yields might even be higher than they are today and that they're only as low as they are because of that little bit of uncertainty? Well, look. A lot of uncertainty, excuse me. We know now, I mean, hindsight's twenty twenty. We know now that Republicans have control effectively of the Oval Office, House, and Senate. That's the first time by any margin that that party has held that control since 1928. <clears throat> that being said, um, when you add, I know you were about to say, and then the Great Recession was in 1929. <laughs> right. Just like, oh boy. I thought of that precedent. this week too. I thought, of, I was like, oh, 
Crazy. That's great. And for any of you guys that went, thanks, Dan. I wasn't going to say that on the radio today. But for all of you guys that went, hey, thanks for that reminder. It only took one year for them to destroy it last time this happened. A lot has changed since then. And this is the thing, I think, right there. I mean, you you just scratched the surface of something that's freaking a lot of people out. Because what happened since 1929? Well, we have the Federal Open Market Committee. We have Fannie and Freddie. We have Fannie and Freddie. We have regulation. We've had substantial financial reform. We have um, FDIC deposit insurance. We have, dude, there's so much that's happened as our country has matured since then. And to answer your question about the bond yield thing, um, well, now we got a dude in there that basically says all bets are off. I'm gunning for the Fed chair. I'm gunning for your health insurance. I'm gunning for the tax plan. I'm gunning for um, Dodd-Frank. What's freakier about all that is that tomorrow it may be a different message you know and that's i think that's where all this uncertainty is coming from we've he's shown that he'll change thought process mid-sentence like pretty much so that's where the concerns are that's what the uncertainty is so you take all that into consideration and i just zoom out just enough to say this um and i know i i know i kind of scratched at this earlier in the show but all of these things are going to lead to probably a pretty robust growth cycle. I think you should all get ready for it. Um, whether it's sustainable or there are hangover effects or whatever, we're going to see how that shapes up. But we're going to go through a pretty robust growth cycle. And with that, we're going to see a lot of inflation. And so far, I think the market has primarily said, um, we've been waiting for inflation for years. We now just received the biggest indicator of inflation. These policies are going to affect inflation and economic growth in a real way. Whether or not you suspect that the long-term outcome is good or bad, you're going to see these things come into play and make a run, and it's going to lead to inflation. So part of it is that these bond yields are sort of just normalizing because these are setting the stage. These are basically... Um, creating the path for the inflation that the country's been unable to achieve um, in the last several years. That's what I think at the at the very core of what's happening is. Um, and so here's the deal. Next week, we're going to have a whole nother week's perspective of how to sort of touch base with you guys again and bring you up to date on what the week meant. We got this news on Tuesday, right? We saw what happened on Wednesday. We saw what happened on Thursday, and then the markets closed on Friday. So I suspect that in true form, it's a knee-jerk reaction where we sort of, everybody went, holy crap, we didn't have enough time to think about and talk about and, and surmise what all this is going to mean. And so everybody just sort of spewed all of their opinions, you know, arguably what we've done here on the show today. We're attempting to grapple with and digest what this means to us, at least as it pertains to the economy, the purpose of this show, mortgage and real estate. And we're going to have next week a full week of 
how it how we figure it out. What does the stock market do? Are we expecting a little bit of correction? Are we expecting a, a correction um, in terms of the bond yields? What are we going to see? How comfortably are you know are the riots and these kind of things slowing down? Um, we're going to see. We're going to have more time to have sort of let this all settle in. We're going to watch the dust settle a little bit. We're going to bring you guys a good update next week. But it was such a crazy week. There's so much unknown, so much volatility, um, and everybody, I think, is concerned for one reason or another about what the future holds for us all. So next week, we'll we'll have a greater perspective on it, and we'll, we'll touch in and share on these things again. Um, we're not done yet, by the way. I know it sounded awfully, um, you know, the finishing touches we typically do, but we need to do the final commercial break of the hour, and then we'll come back and, and finish up with the rest of Mortgage Matters. Stick around. Mortgage Matters with host Dan and Jason will be right back. Join the conversation by calling 543-8830 or 800-549-5832. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending, Central Coast Lending. When you buy or refinance a home, just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. Just call 543-LOAN. We're the mortgage experts on the Central Coast. Central Coast Lending. Central Coast Lending is locally owned and operated with locations in Paso Robles, Morro Bay, Atascadero, San Luis Obispo, and Arroyo Grande. For those of us who live here on the Central Coast, we know this is a unique place to have a home. And for over 30 years, Patterson Realty has been a vital part of San Luis Obispo County. Patterson professionals have led the way in real estate by adapting to new market conditions to make sales happen. What they offer is the quality of their people, agents working just for you. Get the experts at Patterson Realty on your side. Experience the Patterson difference. Call 544-8662 or online at pattersonrealty.com. Through seven presidential administrations, bull and bear markets, and unprecedented change, Blakesley & Blakesley has been here helping residents of the Central Coast reach their financial goals. So if you need retirement advice beyond Social Security, want to roll over an old 401k, or simply seek guidance through an important financial decision, visit Blakesley & Blakesley in San Luis Obispo, Paso Robles, and Santa Maria. Blakesley & Blakesley, for the service you deserve and the advice you trust. Member FINRA and SIPC. You're tuned in to Mortgage Matters, which airs every Saturday from 9 a.m. to 11 a.m. Your hosts, Dan and Jason from Central Coast Lending, want you to join the conversation by calling 800-549-5832. Now, back to the show. Welcome back. United States Coast Guard March. Oh, okay. Mm-hmm. I'm yeah. familiar with they that. They don't one. get the uh, the notoriety they they so ditchly ditch richly deserve. I'm trying to ditch, yeah, there it is. ditchly reserve. Ditch, yeah, yeah. I'm trying to screw those two up. You got your merds wicks. Yeah, there it is. 
Um, we appreciate our Coast Guard out in Morro Bay. Oh my exactly. goodness, do we ever? I've yeah. been rescued by them. I've I've been on that boat as well. <laughs> yeah. um, do you guys like the Morro Bay Coast Guard page on Facebook? Yeah. It's awesome. And yeah, and they're, uh, it's such a, it's one of my favorite Facebook pages actually. And they do surf exercises. Like when Morro Bay is getting pumping with big waves that are in the surf, punching those boats through those waves. It's unbelievable. And if you are any sort of a mariner that's in and out of that harbor for pleasure or um, work or whatever you're doing going in and out of Morro Bay, you know that it's a it's kind of a crazy harbor. It's yeah. got some it's claimed some pretty impressive vessels, and you see the Coast Guard and their ability to navigate with those boats in there. That's yeah. very reassuring. They're amazing. They're they amazing. know how to run those boats. Yeah. So awesome. Hats off to the United States Coast Guard. All right. And that rounds it out, right? You have no more commercial breaks to I have, give us I any I got more. all five of them in. All right. Air Great Force, job. Army, Navy, Marines, yep. and Coast Guard. Awesome. Mm-hmm. Um, all right. Lastly, I mean, we saved nine minutes for it. We got to talk about weed. <laughs> that did not pass in Arizona was there. It's too hot the there. First thing I saw when in Arizona. It did it's not too hot pass. to smoke anything. <laughs> <laughs> And that Sheriff Joe Arpaio (laughs) did not get reelected either. That was kind of funny. The one that likes to lock everybody up outside. Uh Oh. Yeah, he didn't get reelected. I I don't know that I paid close enough attention to all that. Mm. Yeah. Um, Well, anyway, this election season brought voting for marijuana around the country. Kind of crazy. California, Massachusetts, Maine, and Nevada approved recreational legalization, joining um, uh, Washington and California. Arizona. Colorado, right? Yeah, Colorado as well. Um, Let's see. On the medical side, so Arizona appears rejected the uh, recreational legalization. Um, And on the medical side, Florida, Arkansas, and North Dakota all voted in favor of medical cannabis. Um, I brought this up here. One, I think it's just kind of funny that that we're kind of grappling this. It's prohibition style thing going on. And it seems like many of the states obviously are, are getting more and more comfortable with it. Um, well, interesting aside, I'll skip it. But anyway, here we go. Uh, it's still a federal offense. Pot is illegal federally um, for everything, including medicinal uses. So you're starting to see, obviously, with a huge state like California coming out in favor of it, um, it's gaining some attention. Um, I'm not going to weigh in on my opinion about it or tell you how I voted for it. Um, but, But what I did think was relevant was to talk a little bit about what was the case under the Obama administration, and then, of course, we have a little bit of speculation about what it might mean federally. Um, first of all, under currently under the, the Obama administration, federal, astor, uh, federal authorities have been kind of hands-off about it. Obviously, they know what's going on. They're not in there actively raiding places that are doing like in California we've had medical cannabis for a few years now right I don't even mm-hmm. know how long it's been yeah, I don't know. but it's I think a, a while years, yeah. three four Not maybe even longer than that I think it's been six or seven hmm. um, anyway 
they haven't been in there busting people. So you haven't heard a lot about it. And perhaps that's how everybody got so comfortable with it enough to throw it on a ballot measure and say, oh, let's go for it recreationally. Of course, we also have some feedback about what it's meant in places like Washington and Colorado. As far as tax, tax revenue. revenue. Well, we're also getting a little bit of a look about what it does in terms of crime statistics and driving under the influence and accidents, emergency room visits. We're getting a little bit broader understanding of, of what it means when a state does this recreationally. Um, by the way, the majority of counties in Colorado have outlawed allowing somebody to have a retail establishment that sells weed. So it's 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 been interesting to see how it comes uh, into each of the states. But um, Donald Trump has said, so currently federally, marijuana is a, is a Schedule One drug, which makes it, um, basically it has no known medical benefits and is um, very, very dangerous um, drug. It's on there with other drugs that you could think of, like heroin, that have no medical benefit and are wildly dangerous. So it's classified as Schedule One. It's highly illegal. Um, proponents for marijuana make the case that, you know, there are some medical values to it. I'm not going to get into the weeds on that. What I wanted to dig in here and say, <laughs> ah, pun intended. Um, but here's the deal though, in terms, so Trump has made the statement while campaigning that he believes that it probably belongs as schedule two or lower, which finds for some medical benefit. Pretty unlikely that he's going to get on board with making it federally recreationally legal. I don't think anybody expects that's coming anytime soon. Um, At the same time, the general statement that I hear is that he'd like to see more of the regulation be handled by states rather than by the federal government. Yeah, that's been the line he's towed all along, which is kind of that state sovereignty type of deal. Um, and so we'll see how it plays out, but there's a tie together here that since this has been in the media this week, I thought I'd run through this real quick because it's federally illegal today. Um, that means that any government agency is, um, like Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, Ginny Mae, FHA, VA, all of these loan programs that basically fall under federal jurisdiction, um, are not able to accept marijuana related incomes, um, and so this falls into the loan category. Obviously, mm. you can't be a, a medical marijuana dispensary and come in and qualify for one of these loan programs with that as your basis of income. I don't know a lot about it. Frankly, it's not that interesting to me. So I don't go in down the rabbit hole of researching it. But I know one of the big hangups is that because it's federally illegal and then that affects banks, you can't go have bank accounts to deposit the cash from selling the medical marijuana in the state, you know, as is the case in the state of California. So it makes it really hard for those companies to function within that framework. It also um, doesn't give a lot of certainty of the likelihood of continuance of that income. Right. So um, thought I'd just throw that out there as a little bit reminder as our society gets more and more comfortable with this. It's still very difficult to buy a home. And then, of course, there's a whole host of questions that come from um, real estate as it relates to marijuana, be it recreational or medical, is what happens if your tenant is growing weed? Is that a problem for you? Um, I mean, even just in as much as like the odor and the potential for mold in that moist, hot plant growing 
in the bedroom environment. Like there's all these things to think about and consider. So obviously we're going to see a lot of this stuff get um, sort of clarified for us over the the coming probably months and years. But um, yeah, anyway, we're, we're sure cozying up to it as a state. And it seems like now with these new critical additions between recreational and medical, it's becoming something that we're going to have to pay more attention to going forward. Um, but yeah, banks, mortgage companies, we're all really nervous about dealing with that kind of thing right now because there's not really a place for it. And we're all afraid of the the backlash. So um, guys, I, uh, I, I want to thank you just um, in general for listening to Mortgage Matters. I, I know we always get a lot of feedback that even when we're not getting a lot of calls, we know that you guys are listening. Um, today we attempted to try to stay on topic with what this stuff means and um, try to stay out of the 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 political kind of banter and all that. Um, if you need loan help this week, get with us at 543-LOAN or find us on the web at centralcoastlending.com. Thanks a bunch for listening. We'll be back next week with another episode of Mortgage Matters.